Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM on and on a fine Friday morning on 21st of April. And today you're joined today by um, presenters Jacob Andruffer, myself. And me, Ari Hybrids. So, um, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded and that FreeCR, Green Left Radio, is committed to First Nations sovereignty and their fight and all the, all the, um, all the, and the fight back of Indigenous people for their land. And, um, okay, so getting into kind of like the program um we have quite a we we are we're kind of actually discussing quite a lot of issues um actually this week so probably one one interview we're going to be playing um quite soon after we having after we go through a bit of some of the headline kind of news stories is um we're going to be playing an interview with um that was done in Queensland by Green Left's Alex Bainbridge with Max Shadler Mafer who is one of the um Brisbane Greens MPs um for the seat of Griffith and what has been fascinating has been there's been this ongoing political fight over between the Greens and the Labor Party over this um, housing bill. And Matt, the interview with Max Shadow the Mayfair will be will kind of go into you know some of the some of the details about that. And then we're going to be um, we're going to be speaking to um, Sarah Sanada, um, who is a member of the Sudanese community um, in Melbourne, and. There's actually been some very kind of major developments in the Sudanese kind of protest movement. And we, and yeah, so we, we have Sarah to kind of talk about kind of like some of the current sort of developments in that. Um, in fact, it's actually some of the events, um, I've been seeing in the news have actually been quite full on mm. in terms of uh, that ongoing sort of mass uprising. Now, and then finally, we'll probably um, go and cover some news from Green Left um, throughout the program where we'll be covering kind of like the latest in struggles against injustice and the fight for a better world. Specifically, we'll cover, we'll have a bit, we'll go give a bit of report back on the Rising Tide conference that happened um, last weekend that we've been actually promoting in Green Left and then talking about some of the different sort of climate actions and um, and also some of the um, and some other kind of political developments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Ari, you, you want to kind of start off, I guess, a bit of discussion on this, um, I guess one of the more sort of main sort of headline news stories was um, the Labor Party... Uh, said to, uh, the Labor Party has, is basically, is basically going to be unviewing the, the federal budget, um, very soon. Um, mm. Jim Chalmers is, is our treasurer. And essentially 
some some initial announcements have come out from the budget. Um, basically, we're, we're kind of getting an idea of what the budget will not include. Uh, <laughs> um, to start off, it's actually my um, my local MP Peter Khalil um, actually tweeted on in response to an anti-poverty campaigner, and obviously to give a bit of context, one of the things that people are kind of hoping to see, were hoping, I'm just mm. going to say were, uh, hoping to see in the budget was they were hoping to see an increase in job seeker. And mm. I was assured by my local MP, Peter Khalil, that there would be something exciting in, in, in the federal budget. Or yeah. not that he used those exact words, but it's just he sort of implied there would be something in the federal budget and we should wait and see. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, what we get to wait and see for is nothing. Shock. <laughs> so we're going to talk a bit about an article in The Guardian by Paul Karp. The headline of the article, I think, is fun. Uh, Government ignores calls from its own experts to lift seriously inadequate job seeker rate. And the subheadline I, I also like is unemployment benefit rates are at such an inadequate level that they create a barrier to paid work. Uh, a committee... Commissioned by the federal government found. So um, Jim Chalmers and Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth released a report in the uh, released the report of the Interim Economic Inclusion Committee, which found that the dire level of job seeker is acting as a barrier to entering the workforce as job seekers don't have enough to meet the essentials of life. So the committee was pushed for by uh, Senator David Peacock. And um, he's saying it appears that this labor, labor government can find extra money for just about anything from inland rail cost blowouts to submarines, but it won't do anything. It won't do more to protect the most vulnerable. So um, the base rate of job seeker for people who don't know is $693 and 10 cents a fortnight for a single person with no children, which is about uh, $49 dollars 50 cents a day the committee recommended uh 90 of the aged pension uh which is worth uh 971.50 a fortnight or 69 dollars 40 a day and so 90 percent of that would be like 61 62 something like that a day um which i would say is still distinctly inadequate but obviously an improvement um and so <clears throat> People on these payments face the highest levels of financial stress in Australia, the report said, and committee members heard from people who live on income support having to choose between paying for their medicine or electricity bills. Um, and it's also the view of the report that our income support system should be should prevent poverty and financial distress to ensure people looking for paid work are not placed at greater disadvantage by virtue of not having enough money to meet the essentials of life. Um, and the report also found that rent assistance obviously woefully inadequate, um, particularly with the like skyrocketing costs of housing and rent, but that since about like less than 40% of job seekers have uh, access to rent assistance, get rent assistance, raising that specifically wouldn't really do that much. And um, the committee also called for the Parents Next program and the activity test for childcare subsidies to be abolished. Uh, which are two recommendations that have been echoed by the Women's Economic Equality Task Force. So the government estimates that the total cost of implementing the recommendations in full would be $34 billion. Um, I think that would be extra a year or something. Um, and the thing that is always worth thinking about 
when it comes to these sorts of governmental costings is like $34 billion sounds like a lot of money. Um, unless you're a government. And so the tax three, sorry, the stage three tax cuts that Labor's going ahead with, um, are projected to take more than $243 billion, um, out of the budget over 10 years. And obviously the AUKUS submarine deal is going to cost $368 billion. Um, over the next, I forget how many years, um, but over the next few years. And so compared to that, like, if you combine those two, um, and they're both ideologically consistent with each other, just to be clear, uh, but if you combine those two, um, the amount that w- it would cost to implement higher job seeker, which would I would say would still be inadequate, would be um, something like 5% of the cost of those two. And so it's not, for a government, it's not much money. Um, and then, like, the other thing that came to mind, of course, reading this article was um, the 2019 election. Um, and particularly, I forget his name, <laughs> the guy that they, the Labour guy they ran that time. Uh, but the basically, the, the um, them wanting to get rid of dividend imputation and I think it was negative gearing as well. And what they found at the time, um, I believe, was that dividend imputation, which for people who don't remember was when I think it's rich retirees get free money for investments, like they get tax credits on tax they don't pay because they're retired. Um, so they just get handed, rich people get handed money, obviously. Um, that the cost of that was something like equivalent to all of the combined job seeker costs or something, possibly including Oz study and Ab study, if I remember correctly. Um, so like, it's fairly, the thing as always is that the government will like, likes to say, oh, we don't have enough money to help the working class and poor. Um, but I mean, aside from the fact that they do because money's not real, um, the reason, arguably, that they don't have that much money is because they're bu- busy spending it on just giving rich people more money. And um, <clears throat> so, like, again, if they're like, ah, oh, that's too expensive, maybe maybe they need to tighten their belts, eh? That's the joke, isn't it? Hmm. The government needs to tighten its belt. Maybe don't pay so much money for nuclear submarines that we don't need. Yeah, I mean... Going, adding on to a kind of few summer points, um, cause, okay, I guess one kind of political implication about this is it's quite, you know, it's quite telling that the, I mean, not that I want to turn this into a discussion about the voice to parliament, but it's sort of quite telling that, you know, when it comes to the government's sort of own sort of committees that they actually convene, mm. they don't even listen to the advice of their own committees. And so, that sort of gives me a lot of scepticism towards this whole, um, to the kind of push by the ALP around the voice to parliament in terms of the actual change that will be ushered because, you know, we're being told that, you know, we need, we need this to reflect the voices of the First Nations community, etc. And, you know, looking at this kind of track record, they're not even listening to the advice of their own sort of committees. But yeah. also, I think to also put this, um, more in context, I mean, we've, we've lived with years of, of liberal governments, um, who have, 
you know, steadfast consistently refuse to increase the rate of job seeker. They've consistently refused. I mean, the only time that actually they increase mm. job seeker, actually, the funny thing is the Liberal Party have a better track record so far than the Labor Party <laughs> on increasing job seeker yeah. because, um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was obviously the Liberal Party in power and they massively increased job seeker to actually what was actually considered quite a livable level, um, at that time. Um, before yeah. reversing the kind of changes. And then the Labor Party, um, you know, for the, for the longest time, while, while they weren't in, um, while they weren't in power, they were constantly sort of saying in the background that, yeah, you know, they were criticizing the Labor, um, they were criticizing the Liberals for refusing to increase job seeker. Of course, at that time, let's just be clear, it's not like Labor was saying, yeah, we're gonna, we'll, we, we want, elect us and we'll increase it to, um, you know, we'll increase it to 500 a week or 600 a week or something. No, no, they'll never say that. They'll just say, we want to increase it and, but we, we can't tell you the sort of exact amount. Yeah. And, you know, the Labour Party now has, and of course, some of the other excuses that the Labour Party's making is the reason that they've, um, some Labour Party people have also argued in the past that they can't promise to increase the job seeker rate because they're not in power. And also there's an election coming and, um, we don't want to get hounded by, um, the Herald Sun for uh, appealing to people on welfare. And so, you know, now they actually now have a majority in Parliament, especially since the Aston by-election, and they still mm. refuse to consistently, um, to increase job seeker to a liberal rate. And I just think this is sort of just telling of the priorities of the Albanese government. You know, the ultimately, despite the fact there's this pretension that the Albanese government, you know, supports, you know, stands up for workers and ordinary people, it's not willing to do the kind of bare minimum in terms of supporting, you know, people who do receive kind of welfare payments. And also, yeah. I guess another thing is um, that sort of argument from the committee is it's quite good that, um, you know, the argument that, you know, basically that the low rate of job seeker is actually a barrier to entering the work for, workforce is actually quite an important one to, to point out because... One of the arguments that the ALP are using in terms of, um, in terms of not increasing job seeker when, when being asked about this, et cetera, is they're basically attempting to say, well, our priority, we, we're in a labor shortage and, and our priority is, is into getting people into work. But, you know, if the job, if the low rate of job seeker is that such a barrier, then I don't, I think it's like, yeah. Yeah. And like, I guess a couple things to quickly add before we get on to the pre-recorded interview we've got is, A, Labor, um, as you said, the Liberals have a better track record for increasing job seeker at this point because after they got rid of the COVID subsidy, which did raise it to a fairly livable rate, they increased it by $50 a fortnight, I think. And Labor was like, yeah, that's good enough. Um, we'll, we'll stop talking about it now, pretty much. But um, something that I didn't mention... Um, from the article, just kind of on that topic, is that Labor also... Um, hang on. Okay, so the committee also called for the government to adopt a full uh, employment... Oh, no, I'm getting ads. Yay. Uh, like a full employment model, and Labor, the Labor government said no. They don't want, they don't want people to be employed. Um, or they don't want to... The thing is, they don't want to help people. And it's like the one of the things for me, having kind of sort of gotten off job seeker at the moment, um, is that like I've had three jobs in the last six months through uh, Workforce Australia, and most of the jobs that they offer you are like 
it's just so much pickpacking and warehousing and that sort of stuff. And often it's like in the middle of nowhere and whatever. And so, sure, there are people who can do that. But say like the first job I got through Workforce Australia for reference, I'm not going to say who it was because they seemed fine, but they didn't have like a any real solid interview process. Um, so people got sent there by various job agencies and then just kind of started. And that seems like that's getting rid of a barrier or something, but I was only there for just over a month and there's got to be at least like 15 people who started and left within the time I was there. And then like I had to leave as well because I couldn't manage it and also other reasons, (laughs) but like it's something that the other thing that's sort of in that like category of impediments to getting a job is that because job seeker is so little money, people will also then end up taking jobs that they get offered that they can't do or that they shouldn't be doing. Like I have a back injury. I shouldn't be working in a factory, but I need the money to survive. (laughs) So, and then the risk of then becoming like more disabled or like being unable to work through taking these like jobs that you shouldn't be taking that increases. And then you'll be less likely to be actually able to work in the end. And the disability pension is also unlivable. Like all these pensions are unlivable. Um, like I said, the, the report suggests that job seeker be raised to 90% of the age pension, but the age pension isn't a livable amount of money for a lot of people either. So it's, it recommends half measures at best. And the labor government is like, no, we're not going to do that. That's too expensive and, or too close to supporting the pause or whatever. But, um, I think we're going to go to the pre-recorded interview, um, in a moment. Which well, was... I might just play some quick, I'll just play a quick few announcements. Um, but yeah, just for listeners who are just tuning in now, um, we we're just having a bit of, um, we we're just having a bit of discussion around, um, the recent announcement that Labor, despite advice from its own sort of established Senate committees, um, will not be increasing the rate of job seeker in the new budget. And in fact, um, in Green Left Radio, we'll be having more discussions on the federal budget, you know, giving a bit of a left-wing and and socialist analysis of what the budget means for, for working people. But, yeah, we'll just play a quick few announcements. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Stick with us. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Freecr 855 AM. Okay, so um, 
I'm going to be playing a I'm going to be playing a recording um, of an interview. This is where Green Left's Alex Bainbridge spoke to Greens Housing spokesperson and federal member for Griffith, Max Chadler Mayfer, about. And this this interview goes into kind of detail about negotiations with Labor over its housing uh, housing package, and and arguments for a rent freeze, the safeguard mechanism, and the AUKUS nuclear submarines. But yeah, hope listeners enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Uh, this is Alex Bainbridge with Green Left. I'm here with Max Chandler-Mather, who's the Greens housing spokesperson and the federal member for, for Griffith. I spoke to Max this week and I asked him about, first of all, if you could explain the shortfalls in Labor's housing bill and what are the Greens seeking to change? Sure. So basically under Labor's current plan, the housing crisis will literally get worse. Labor's proposal, which is called the Housing Australia Future Fund, is essentially to get $10 billion of public money uh, and gamble it basically on the stock market via the Future Fund, which was set up by Peter Costello. They've then said that any returns by uh, that future fund, while well, some of them would be spent on housing, social and affordable housing every year. The first problem is that last year the future fund actually lost 1.2%, so the housing fund would have lost $120 million and not a cent would have been spent on housing. And even where the returns might be good, uh, how, spending on housing is actually capped at $500 million a year. They've said that um, the target... Uh, the, of this Housing Australia Future Fund is to help finance the construction of up to uh, 20,000 social and 10,000 so-called affordable homes from 2025 to 2030. Uh, and uh, the problem there is even if they reach those targets, which they almost certainly won't, the shortage of social and affordable housing will get bigger than it is now because it's currently about 640,000 homes and it's due to increase by 75,000 homes uh, over that same five-year period. So 30,000 won't even keep up with the increase uh, in the shortage, let alone tackle the overall crisis. Really, the bottom line is you wouldn't fund schools or hospitals via some chaotic, risky gamble on the stock market. And really what the government should be doing is just investing directly in building public and affordable housing. So what exactly are the Greens pushing for? So we've made a few negotiating asks. The first is uh, the government should invest at least $5 billion a year directly building public and genuinely affordable housing. Uh, ideally, we actually want to see much more than that, but we thought that was a good negotiating ask. Uh, and the, secondly, we'd like to see the federal government coordinate a national freeze on rent increases. Uh, the government has coordinated national rental regulation before. They can do it uh, again. And with rents due to increase even faster this year, pushing more people onto the streets and, and actually increasing the demand for social housing, uh, we think it's really urgently needed. Um, you know, we know that actually in the 20th century, the federal government used to have a, play a big role in building public housing. And in fact, if... Uh, on a population basis, if the federal government was building the same amount of public housing as they did in the 1960s, then over the next five years, the federal government would build 150,000 public homes, not 20,000 from 2025 to 2030. Uh, and that would actually start to really tackle the crisis. So we've said we're willing to negotiate in good faith, but as yet, uh, mostly Labor have responded by just issuing threats, and in particular, the Prime Minister. Talking about a rent freeze, there are a number of arguments that people make against this. Some people think it's a radical idea. One of those arguments is that landlords should be able to charge as much rent as the market will bear. How do you answer arguments like that? 
Well, firstly, housing is in a from our view, is a, a central service. It, it, it should be a right for everyone. And um, we wouldn't allow um, any access to any sort of essential service to be left entirely up um, to a private private market, or certainly we shouldn't. Uh, we, do a, we do to a degree with energy. And housing should be no different. And uh, we know that rental regulation works around the world. A lot of European countries have either used rent freezes recently or ongoing rent controls to ensure that people can live in their um, place uh, long term. Another thing people say is that, well, mortgages are just going up, so house owners have just got no choice but to raise the rents. What, how do you reply? Well, the first thing to say is that we've called on the government to stop interest rate increases to um, give mortgage holders relief. Although it's important to note that there's no, there's actually no uh, economic link between increases in, uh, increases in uh, interest rates and increases in rents and, and mortgage repayments. Uh, it might give a landlord an excuse to jack up the rent, but actually rents um, are mostly determined by what, as you sort of alluded to before, what the market, what the so-called market will bear. And uh, because housing is essential, it's something people need to live a life, you know, they need a home, uh, landlords often have renters over a barrel because they know they can force people to spend 50, 60, sometimes 70% of their income on rent. And, and by and large, rentals will wear it as long as they can afford it and pick that over, say, paying other bills or, or even feeding their kids some nights because ultimately they need a roof over their heads. And it's a completely broken system where uh, 30% of the country who rent basically are held at ransom uh, uh, to get what is just as important as healthcare or education or in some instances even more important. What ideas do you have for mobilising extra parliamentary pressure on the Albanese government to push for better housing outcomes? Yeah, so we um, have been organising some national door knocking, uh, basically targeting federal labour electorates and knocking on doors and asking people, do you, the basic question being, uh, this is what Labor's proposed, this is what the Greens are pushing for, so $5 billion a year in public and affordable housing, especially after you know the federal government just found $368 billion for nuclear attack submarines. And do you think the Greens should back down? and just support whatever Labor's proposal, or should we hold firm and push for Labor to come to the negotiating table? Over 80% of people said we should hold firm and push for Labor to come and agree to our demands. And this is places like Ipswich in Queensland, where the Greens actually only polled 6% of the vote at the last federal election, but over 80% of people were supportive of our demands. We also... um, So getting involved in that is really useful. Uh, Also, we held a large rally... Well, not a large rally, but a good rally down uh, in Canberra with the CFMEU... Uh, and uh, really anything that uh, makes la- clear to Labor that actually the public is against them on this. I mean, the broader context, this is, this is probably the worst housing crisis Australia has faced in generations. You know, you've got millions of people uh, in ha- some form of housing stress, homeless, stuck on wait lists for social housing, and a lot of other people, one rental increase away from being in that situation. And so um, our... Our strategy is to try and mobilise as many of those people as possible and make Labor realise that there are going to be electoral consequences if they take the sides of the banks and property developers again um, when it comes to, you know, finally taking action, either capping rents or and or building mass build of public and affordable housing, which is entirely impossible. Poss- it's entirely possible technically. Um, the major political barrier at the moment is Labor. Some people were disappointed, myself included, with the Greens' decision to vote for Labor's climate safeguard mechanism, even though the amendments improved it, because even after the amended, it was still it's still a policy based on the failed carbon trading measures. I wonder if you want to respond to that, but 
I guess, in relation to housing in particular uh, and negotiations there, do you have any bottom lines that you will not cross in relation to the housing legislation? Yeah, I, I, I can understand the criticisms of um, Safeguard. I, I, I think uh, the concessions we conceded from Labor on that were um, not insignificant, uh, although I think, as I've said, I've said clearly very publicly, negotiating with Labor is basically negotiating with the fossil fuel industry. And so uh, uh, anything is probably like getting anything out of them is sort of remarkable. The limitation in that instance was, um, and this is very important to consider long term, uh, we were the Greens were relatively isolated uh, in this um, debate and fight because there was no mobilisations on the streets. Like, um, there was no school climate strikes going on during these negotiations. There were no large public rallies. None of the climate, none of the um, large sections of the climate movement were mobilising in any way. They were completely demobilised, and uh, which meant that the balance of forces uh, in this debate were you had on the one hand even groups like ACF who, if anyone is listening, if you're a member of the ACF, still quit, I would argue, because out there saying, oh, the Greens should just support this, all the way to, you know, all the fossil fuel industry gearing up, saying everyone should support this, to large sections of the media, the Labor Party, uh, and basically large sections of Australian capital, all pushing for everyone to support this. And then on the other hand, it was just the Greens and sort of the Australian Institute doing some good communications work, pointing out how flawed Labor's plan was. It's very difficult to get any more major concessions when you basically have a completely demobilised civil society. So I think long term, we need to work out, I think a broader lesson for the climate movement in particular and for the Greens is how do we build our social power uh, on the streets and at the doors as, and build the capacity to mobilise on the ground in the same way we mobilise during federal elections and actually mobilise that like that during parliamentary fights, which is a lesson we've taken to housing. And Certainly we have made very clear we're not just going to wave this bill through unamended um, and we've made very clear I think publicly and in private to Labor that we want a substantial increase uh, in direct guaranteed funding every year for public and genuinely affordable uh, housing and uh, action on capping rents in some way and um, we're not going to back down from that. We've made it very clear. That, of course, poses potential electoral consequences, but we are attempting to mobilise on the ground as well, including large-scale reigniting our large-scale door-knocking, this time not for electoral politics per se, winning votes, but actually starting to build real social social pressure on Labor to make significant concessions. What about organising protest actions? Yeah, um, looking forward to... um, looking exploring the possibility of organising more. I, my view on protests is it's only worth organising them when you have either big groups like the CFMEU on side willing to help or you are confident you can turn out thousands of people. Um, and I don't think we're necessarily there yet. Um, certainly, if we, could, um, we would definitely organise more protests with the CFMEU, and I think that did put some significant pressure on Labor. Um, I think they were surprised to see you know, Green's... Um, MP like me standing on a stage with the um, incoming National Secretary of the CFMEU calling to build, slamming the government and Labor and calling them to build public housing. I think that did have an impact. Um, and we're certainly looking at more in any ways um, to try and um, to try and build pressure and mobilise more people around this, definitely. Finally, while we're here, if it's okay, I'd like to ask you about the Talisman Sabre War Games, which are coming up in Queensland primarily, and also the AUKUS submarines. Uh, can the Greens help to organise protests against this massive expansion in militarism? 
Yeah, really important. And, you know, um, we are actually thinking about organising some large town halls and, and public meetings about um, pushing back and fighting it back against the AUKUS deal. I mean, we've had um, on this, We, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. We've had lifelong Labor members, like 30, 40 years, get in touch with our office, living in the electorate, saying, I'm never voting for Labor again because of this. Like, I think they've underestimated the public pushback. Um, and uh, it's essential, you know, because... The um, tying ourselves so um, uh, permanently to the U.S. empire and uh, what they seem to be fanging for, which is um, a direct military conflict with China, which would be catastrophic, is catastrophic for Australia. And um, yeah, I think it was telling that while Labor are going around saying we can't find an extra single cent to build public housing, they can, out of nowhere magic up $368 billion over 30 years, which breaks down to $12 billion a year, by the way, on average, um, I think says everything we need to know about where Labor is at at the moment. Like, they are a, a centre-right, right government uh, with perhaps even more enthusiastically um, uh, militarist uh, than the previous coalition government, and we need to find ways to resist that and, and make Labor suffer electoral consequences for it. Uh, well, thanks, Max, for your time. Very much appreciated. Uh, that was Max Chandler-Mather. He's the Greens housing spokesperson and federal MP for Griffith. Uh, as always, if you like the work that we here at GreenLeft do, please become a GreenLeft supporter at our website, greenleft.org.au slash support. Uh, this- oh, apologies for that. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. 8.55 a.m. and you're just um, you're just hearing an interview with Max Shadler Mayfair um, and this in, the interview is actually available in video forum on Gritty Green Left so if you wanted to check it out you can also pass it on to your friends or anyone you think might be interested um, and it's available at the greenleft.org.au website. Anyway, I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. So for the next three minutes, I thought we'll go and play a quick song. So I was going to play, this is from um, a folks, uh, folk, uh, pretty prominent um, left-wing folk singer, Dave Rowicks. And um, this is from his latest album, Killing the Messenger. So I'm playing Killing the Messenger by David Rowicks. You're listening to Green Left Radio. files and protect the 
sources while sharing all the important bits, of course. With a database that's searchable all around the earth that exposed the rich and powerful, showed us what they're worth, showed us the corrupt ways they run affairs. From Iceland to the Indies to almost everywhere, making clothes transparent on emperors all round, everywhere that whistleblowers are to be found. WikiLeaks was too effective, it had to be beaten out. blew the whistle on war crimes he called out for someone to step up this time with WikiLeaks assistance what Chelsea Manning did on torture and mass murder she blew the lid and the war on WikiLeaks went into overdrive as the authorities tried hard to make sure it couldn't survive now they want to kill the messenger while most of us stand by just waiting Being used against Assange under the extradition pact. Not just Republican war criminals, but Democrats too. Had it out for him now for telling what he knew. When the DNC rigged the race, got Clinton the nomination, put Sanders in his place. Now they want to kill the messenger while most of us stand by, just waiting for this prisoner to die. They'll call him a foreign agent, say he should be shot. They'll call him a narcissist, whatever defamation they got. They'll say he's not a journalist, unlike the ones in Moscow, reporting on the criminals that we allow. Reporters to report on, they give them the Nobel, while this Australian is caged and sent to hell.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and you're just listening to Killing the Messenger by David Rorix, and you can listen to the rest of the album, um, which is titled Killing the Messenger, and um, David Rorix has actually been doing a tour around um, Australia, I'm not sure if he's been performing in Melbourne yet, but yeah, stay tuned for, we'll put that details up in the Green Left Actors calendar. Now, I just wanted to do a quick news story before we go into our kind of first interview. Um, but this is just a bit of a positive news development in terms of workers' struggles and workers' rights. Um, but we've been covering this um, 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 this dispute, which is the Switzer kind of dispute. And basically, the, the latest news is that the Switzer has backed, um, backed down and they basically have... They backed down from a legal action, which was... Essentially, the Switzer were... Ten, um, the Danish tugboat company Switzer was basically... Uh, was basically pursuing legal action to cancel the 2019 ent- Enterprise Biden grant of almost 600 tugboat workers. And of course, they were pushing for a new EBA that included big pay cuts, fewer safety and fatigue management measures and less job security. It had locked fr- workers out and frozen workers' wages. Now, wages have, have been, um, and MUA Sydney Branch Deputy Secretary Paul Garrett said, you know, in response, sadly, a considerable num- amount of time, energy and resources have been expended on this process and these resources could have been better put by Switzer um, towards awarding the hard work and loyalty of their employees with a fair um, pay rise. Um, so essentially, yeah, the, the, it's a bit, obviously I think it's a bit in a, in a standstill, but the, I guess the fact that they have um, reversed kind of the legal kind of action, I think is in a sense, in a, sense uh, a positive political development. And um, you can read more by going up on greenleft.org.au and looking for the article titled MUA Workers Switzer's Backdown Presses for New Agreement. Anyway, just go play a quick few announcements. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiyah to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we are just about to begin our first live interview. And we are joined here by Sarah Thanada, who is a member of the Sudanese community in Melbourne and the co-founder of Media for Justice in Sudan and has been very active in building solidarity um, with the ongoing solidar- uh, ongoing protest movement in Sudan. So we've invited um, Sarah in the show to give Give us an update on Sudan's democratic revolution against military w- rule. Welcome and good morning, Sarah. Uh, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Oh, yeah, all good. Um, so maybe just to start, um, 
The current struggle against dictatorship and for a transition to civilian rule began in late 2018 with the overthrow of the Omar al-Bashir regime. Um, just can you tell us, our listeners, about some of the recent developments in Sudan? Um, what's, I guess, the situation on the ground like? Um, so basically, after the the Sudanese uh, revolution, uh, or at, the Sudanese revolution continues, but at some point of the Sudanese revolution, there was an agreement that was signed with um, the military uh, and the rapid support forces. To, to share power for some time, along with civilians, in order to transition to democracy and to civilian rule in the long run. Um, the Rapid Support Forces is a paramilitary group headed by Hemeti, um, who's a warlord, and they're all um, warmongers. Uh, the military, uh, the Sudanese Armed Forces, is headed by Burhan, and who's also a warmonger. They're both known to have killed um hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Darfur during the genocide and continue to kill people in Sudan to this day. Um, they've had a disagreement, or basically, just to put, put it very briefly in a nutshell, uh, these two psychopaths, Hemeti and Aburhan, heading the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces, are fighting over power and who gets control of Sudan and to rule Sudan. Hmm. And what can you give us a bit more info? Um, tell us a bit about, I guess, the protest kind of movement. Um, because one of the kind of, I guess, as someone who's been following, um, has been following the kind of developments quite closely. I mean, one of the inspiring things has been this, um, kind of like establishment by the, by the protest movement of these sort of grassroots sort of resistance sort of committees. And I guess what is the kind of role that they're, I guess, kind of playing, um, especially in terms of the coordination of the protest and also in terms of the kind of the empowerment that they're giving to kind of ordinary people within Sudan against the kind of repression. No protests at the moment. Um, it's a, it's it's a, an incredibly um, life-threatening situation. The entire nation, particularly particularly those in Khartoum, they're most they're the most heavily impacted at the moment. Everyone is in fear for their lives. To give you a glimpse of what's happening at the moment, everyone is hiding in their homes, feeling unsafe inside their own homes because fighting erupted all very suddenly in the capital without warning. Uh, people woke up to the sounds of bombs and stray bullets um, breaking their windows, coming into their houses. So everyone is on the floor right now. Everyone is either under their bed or under their dining table. Entire families in the dark, in um most like locations struggling to find electricity or water. So no one is on the streets uh, except for those who are risking their lives to flee Khartoum and get to another state. Mm. Uh, what the resistance committees are doing right now, which is the very little that's within their power, is to continue providing life-saving support. Because, um, as I said, there's um, people struggling to find drinking water, children children hungry in their own homes. So resistance committees, um, I can speak for the ones where my family lives, uh, like in a neighborhood like Bahri, the resistance community um, of Bahri has been helping provide medicine to people who need things like asthma, um, uh, respirators, uh, uh, urgent life-saving medicine, water. Um, supporting with bringing doctors to people's homes, which is an extremely um, 
they're risking their lives basically to do so. Um, they've been supporting also with um, getting bodies, their dead bodies off the streets. Uh, and that's also another, they're risking their lives to do this. They've been coming together very bravely uh, and supporting their neighborhoods with these basic but extremely important things. In other neighborhoods where um, fighting is extremely high, like Khartoum uh, 2 and like uh, um, Amarat, for instance, which is where the rapid support forces have um, bases, it's been extremely difficult for um, resistance committees to do anything. What they're doing, which is also, again, extremely brave, uh, they're coming together to evacuate people from their own homes because living in these areas is, uh, has been... People have had bombs, um, have had their homes bombed, and they would still have to stay in their house because there's everywhere else is um, extremely dangerous. Their cars looted, um, even gas gas is being stolen out of people's cars. It is um, it is that difficult. Resistance communities have also been supporting with things like that, providing mm. transportation, providing gas to help people move and get out of these situations. But that's really the entire capital. Yeah, and so yeah, it sounds like the um the the kind of image you're kind of getting is that it. In terms of like the the protest movement, you're on, it's in a very kind of desperate, um, kind of dangerous kind of situation. And I guess um, I want to go into a bit of a question around, I guess, the response of the international community. But I guess before that, I guess I want to sort of ask about, um, okay, if people are in such within Sudan are in such desperate situation, I mean, is there has there been a role that um, is there a role that aid is, um, foreign sort of aid is playing in supporting people? What is the Sudanese community kind of doing abroad um, in terms of like fundraising, you know, in terms of practical kind of support? Uh, some people within Sudan also trying to seek um, asylum uh, within um, within other countries. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about if there's been sort of any sort of developments along that? Yes. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good question, Jacob. Um as I said, the situation in, in, in Sudan, and especially in Khartoum, but also in Lubayid and um, Niala last week, is extremely desperate. I want you, I want you and, and listeners to really just take a moment to imagine this. Imagine just waking up one day, the sound of bombs, and you're unable to leave your house. The amount of food that you have, that's all you're going to have until God knows when. Um, your relatives and your friends, you can't see them, you can't get to them. There's darkness, there's no electricity, there's no water. Everyone's life is in danger. No one can get out. There's not even a moment of ceasefire. Mm. Now, getting aid in a situation like this is impossible. It's impossible. Like what the neighborhood committees are doing and the, the resistance committees are doing is not sustainable. They're doing their best. They're getting medicine, they're getting food. It's not sustainable. We, we need humanitarian assistance. But to get there, we need a ceasefire. So we've got a call to action now. And for all listeners, if you've ever cried for Yemen, cried for Ukraine, spoken up for social justice, spoken up for freedom, this is your moment. Please get in touch with your members of parliament, with your contacts within the government. Demand that a ceasefire happens in Sudan request that the Australian government pressure pressure these psychopaths, pressure Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces for a ceasefire, even for a few hours. 
even for a few hours so that people just get some peace. And so the humanitarian corridors are created for humanitarian assistance to get to the people. And, and also to request that the Australian government provide humanitarian assistance to Sudan. People are short of food. Hospitals have no medical supplies. People who are in need of a dialysis, cancer treatment, even women given, giving birth, they're unable to do that. Women are giving birth in their own homes with no medical care whatsoever. We need humanitarian assistance. We need to request the Australian government to please provide humanitarian assistance to those who need it. And last but not least, we also need to remember uh, the, all the Sudanese people on temporary visas here in Australia. They can't go back. Where, they can, where can they go back to? We need to request the Australian government to please allow these people to stay. They've got nowhere to go, and they're dealing with a lot, and they're in need of psychosocial support. Open Australian doors for refugees. People, refugees are not people who, they've got no, they, refugees, we always think of refugees as this other, other group. When crisis hits so close to home, when it hits home, you realize this refugee could have been you. Refugee could have been your mother. A refugee is someone who really did not want to leave, but they've got no other place to go. Let people come in. They've got Sudanese Australian family. Let them join them. People need each other in situations like this. If it was you or your mother or your father, you would want them to be with you. So, um, again, the call to action is to speak up, contact the Australian government, hopefully get Sudanese Australians evacuated out of Sudan, get those who are here to be able to stay safely and find safety in Australia. And... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely exhausted. The fear and the helplessness of the situation is exhausting. But the ask is for people to speak up. We've got a the Sudanese community. Um, oh, well, maybe, I'm sorry, maybe just uh, to stop you there, maybe how about we go into the question of then, um, so you can um, so you can focus the listeners. Um, you've kind of going, you've given kind of detail about the kind of court action and, you know, what, what, what is kind of needed. But I guess, um, how has the Sudanese community here kind of responded? And I guess, and in terms of a practical sense for our listeners, how can we unite and show solidarity against the coup? And are there any upcoming actions, petitions or groups to get involved that you would like to highlight to our listeners? So I'll, I'll leave it to you there. Mm. Yes, Jacob. Um, uh, I was just about to announce that there's the Sudanese community uh, in Victoria is organising a rally this Saturday. It's happening at the State Library of Victoria at 1pm. Again, at the State Library, 1pm this Saturday. Um, there's going to be a rally against the war in Sudan. Please feel free to join us. Bring a sign or a piece of paper that says Stop King in Sudan. That's more than enough. Hopefully this will get our voices across to the media, to the Australian government and to the world. There's a lot of initiatives, um, fundraising, uh, a lot of things that are happening. I could share links with you and possibly you could share it on um, on your website. Um all this information and more can also be uh, found at the rally when you join us. Uh, if you are on social media, follow the hashtag Keep Eyes on Sudan. Hashtag Keep Eyes on Sudan. It will give you all information about what's happening on the ground right now and also um, fundraising links. 
um, and ways that you could help. And um, just wanted to, I just wanted to also ask, um, I guess, what has, I guess, been the response of the international community, like especially the wet, like in terms of governments, um, government response, ne- not necessarily people. Like, for example, what is the posi- what has been the position of the United States, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, and also the Australian government's response? Has there been any condemnation of this, you know, this clearly at least terrible kind of human rights abuses that have been um, dealt against the Sudanese community? Look, in summary, it's been useless. Um, there has been condemnation here and there, just um, you know, very empty words that have had no effect on the ground, no effect whatsoever. Um, the the danger right now is that the situation could easily erupt into a, a civil war uh, that would allow for a lot of inter- international influence coming in as well through the allies of both these groups. Uh, as you know, the Sudanese armed forces, Burhan, got the support of Egypt, uh, the U.S., and um, uh, the rapid support forces. They've got the support of um, uh, Russia and uh, who else? Um, can't remember at the moment, but it's basically it's a it's a cocktail of uh, wep- all sorts of weaponry and all sorts of Outside, um, outside influence that's really all for the resources. Hemeti has got control over gold mines in the West. Uh, the uh, the uh, Sudanese armed forces have got uh, control of other parts, with other resources, and it can just escalate into a really ugly, ugly, ugly situation with, it, with the international um, government's interests really in the wrong place. We have not seen anything positive come out of the empty statements they've made so far. Okay. Um, now, um, we've got running a bit. Um, thanks for that, um, Sarah. And I guess we need to wrap up the interview, I guess, now. And I guess you want to have any kind of final comments for our listeners, and especially since there are some listeners who might just be tuning in now, feel free to kind of repeat um, um, repeat the kind of upcoming protests and any sort of actions. Yes. Again, um, I'll say exactly what I said earlier. Uh, if you've ever spoken up for social justice, freedom, this is your moment. Speak up for what's happening in Sudan. Contact your MPs. Contact your contacts within the Australian government. Apply pressure for the ceasefire to stop. Apply pressure for humanitarian assistance to reach people who need it the most. Come join us at our rally on Saturday, 1 p.m. in front of the State Library of Victoria to find out more about other ways that you can help end this war and this killing in Sudan. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Sarah. And yes, um, Green Left Radio and Freecy, I would like obviously would g- gives all the solidarity um, with with Sudan, and we will want to continue to highlight, you know, the voices of the Sudanese, and also, yeah, we want we'll definitely be um, promoting and actively trying to get people to come to the protests on Saturday. Thank you very much for being on our program. Thanks, Jacob. Okay, you're listening on on 
to Green Left Radio. Uh, you listen, you just, we're just interviewing Sarah Sonata. And basically, I mean, um, it's in a very intense situation right now in Sudan where the military has gone on a full on assault against, uh, the people of Sudan. Basically, people can't even, um, leave their homes, etc. And as a result, um, the massive protest movement that was actually playing a huge role into actually resisting, um, the, the um, the government and also, um, the military, you know, that, and was actually, it was actually even coming close to almost like a kind of dual power kind of situation, you know, has actually had to go into complete retreat because of how terrifying the situation on the ground is. So we'll definitely be giving listeners, um, updates on ongoing developments as they, as they arise. Currently the Sudanese, um, people are calling for a ceasefire to stop the violence. And, um, yeah, there will be a protest at 1 p.m. tomorrow at the State Library. Anyway, I'm just going to go play, I'll play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. 855 AM. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And I'm going to give you, we're going to be going, um, it is now time for the Green Left um, activist calendar. So we'll be going for a number of kind of different sort of events that are, get, um, that are coming up. Um, so the first event is obviously there's going to be the rally to protest the vicious escalation of violence in Sudan. Um, and as, a, as I sort of noted, and this is a bit of background information from the protest event itself, but basically fighting has erupted in Sudan on Saturday as the army and parliamentary forces have clashed, leaving 185 dead and 1,800 injured, according to the UN, and indiscriminate attacks are targeting residential neighbourhoods and hospitals. Airstrikes and military roam the streets are terrorising families who are having to flee their homes and cities in search of safety, food and water. And Sudanese, and thousands of Sudanese living in here are shocked and outraged while trying to contact their families in Sudan to help. So yeah, this will be a very important rally um, to give support to um, to that to the people in Sudan, and it's going to be happening at 1 p.m. And then on on um, and this is going to be an there's execution going on. It's actually finishing up on Saturday um, at the Climb Rate Gallery at 120 Bridge Street at Richmond. Um, one of my good friends, um, Melissa Corbett, is actually has actually has a um, an art sort of. Um, is, has some of her art being shown up at that exhibition. So, yeah, definitely recommend um, listeners check it out before it closes. Um, and then on Wednesday, April the the 12th, um, there's going to be um, a comedy show. Wait, Wha- it's the 21st. Oh, sorry, never mind. Skip, skip, that. skip that, sorry. Skipping forward. Um, um, skipping forward. There's going to be, um, on Friday the 28th of April, there's going to be a disobedience um, street party for the climate, and that's going to be happening at 4.30pm at the Carlton Gardens in Carlton. And then on Monday, May the 1st, there's going to be a May Day for Freedom and Liberation at 5.30pm at the State Library in Swanson Street. 
And then on Thursday, the 4th of May, there's going to be a memorial to workers who won the 8-hour day at 5pm at the 8-hour memorial, opposite Victorian Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Russell Street in the city. And then on Sunday, May the 7th, there's going to be a May Day March rally in March at, at 1pm, assembled at the Shreds Hall, with the March leaving at 2pm and then returns to the Shreds Hall. And then on Thursday, May the 25th to Thursday, May the 27th, there's the Occupy for the Occupy for Client Melbourne 2023. And then on Saturday, 1st of July to Sunday, July the 2nd, there's going to be Eco-Socialism 2023, a world um, beyond capitalism at the, at the Shreds Hall. Now, just let me go double check if there's any other sort of protest events kind of happening. Um, but yeah, um, that's, I think there's some double check. Anything else I've missed? Uh, point, well, I always like to mention that people can go to greenleft.org.au slash events um, and see the activist calendar there. Um, <clears throat> I, it seems a little light at the moment, um, but more events are getting added constantly to it. And um, you can see what's coming up and you can get more information on some of the events that we talk about here. And um, often we'll skip some events for time or relevance or whatever. Um, and so there's generally more details up there on greenleft.org.au slash events. Um. <clears throat> okay. All right. So I'm just gonna go. I might just go. I might just go play a um, a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Stick with us. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand. In a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather around. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And um, we thought we'd spend the next part of the program um, drawing on some news updates from Green Left, but also drawing on some analysis um, from from the latest, um, from the pages of Green Left. So we want to kind of draw, have a bit of a, draw on a bit of a discussion on some of the points that have been raised in this article titled Inequality on Steroids, Top 10% Take Overwhelming May." overwhelming majority of income growth and maybe Ari will start off with some of the points coming from that um, from that piece. Yeah sure sounds good uh, yeah so this is uh, written by Isaac Dallist who's a frequent contributor to Green Left and um, yeah, he starts with a new report released by the Australian the Australia Institute uh, revealed that a staggering 93% of income growth after the past decade in uh, sorry over the past decade in Australia went to just the top 10% of income earners. The bottom 90% received just 7% of income growth around the after the global financial crisis. And um, we have, what, like 23, sorry, like 28 million people or something in Australia. So 10% of that is like two, hang on, math, is like 28,000 people or something. So it's like a ridiculously small number of people when you consider it proportionally. And um, this, the report from the Australia Institute found that economic gain in Australia is now far more concentrated, even compared to Canada, Britain, China, and the United States and the European Union. But it, that was the bit that stood out to me. Like, I don't know, in my brain, the United States is basically a dystopian hellscape. But 
Um, no, I mean, it is, but we concentrated more wealth here than they did, which um, I'm sure the conservatives here are proud of. So um, kind of comparatively, during the post-war years, which was uh, 1950s to 60s, 96% of growth went to the bottom 90% and just 4 to the top percent. Um, and so it's pretty much inverted uh, compared to... T- 2009 to 2019 and um in fact it's kind of worse than inverted right because um uh no not quite worse whatever it's pretty much inverted um so the outcomes kind of reflect um this is from the report from the australian institute the outcomes reflect much deeper forces such as concentration of australian businesses into oligopolies which is not a word i'd heard before and i like it and uh, the weakening of unions in the australia labor market Um, and so particularly that's kind of due to like the um what was it the accords that the union accords with um the like unions and business and government. Um, and so, like, again, Australia at 93% is by far the worst offender, which far ahead of Britain at second place at 72 and the US in third with 63. And um, wages have stagnated over the past decade uh, where as more money was scalped off as profits for the rich. And... Um, Reminder, as always, that profits are just unpaid wages, pretty much. So, uh, but the long time, the long decline in workers' share of GDP correlates with the accord years when labor bosses and union leadership agreed unions would not campaign for wage rises in exchange for investment promises in childcare, welfare, and health services. So that means more profits for bosses. Um, it meant declining uh, union membership as unions kind of didn't do enough and wages pretty much capped under the rate of inflation, which means, again, I've we've mentioned this several times on the show and should keep mentioning it, but if you get a wage rise that's less than inflation, what you've actually gotten is a pay cut, effectively. You have less ability to buy things if your wages don't, at the very least, keep pace with inflation. So that amounts to a tax cut. Um, and then uh, on top of that, progressive tax means workers... Workers pay prog- uh, proportionally more, sorry. Um, plus, obviously, the wealthier find ways to avoid paying taxes when they can. So now the Labor government's about to deliver the coalition's stage three tax cuts, which I mentioned at the start of the show, that amounts to more than $243 billion will be stripped out of the budget over the next 10 years. And obviously, massively disproportionately affect the people who are already getting most of the resources in Australia to begin with. And um, similarly, there's the $368 billion for the AUKUS nuclear submarines, which we've mentioned several times. And um, on top of all that, or underneath all that, I don't know, um, no increases to benefits. <laughs> no more particularly, in like, no more promises of reinvestment into social services or medicine or any of that. It's all just going to the rich, and then also we're buying a bunch of nuclear submarines that we obviously don't need and will probably only make the situation worse from the U.S. Um, so, uh, like, pretty much, yeah, rather than change course and relieve pressure on ordinary working people or just ordinary people um, in general, people, as opposed to rich people who don't count, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is determined to maintain... 
bipartisanship specifically on uh, screwing us all over and giving more money to the rich <laughs> while claiming that he's delivering a new form of politics, um, which I certainly haven't noticed. And, like, as I like to say, uh, venues like Green Left and, like, 3CR, the radio <laughs> uh, station that we're on, have, are, like, I think really important elements in trying to spread awareness and trying to, like, build up popular resistance against these sorts of measures. And so, you know, Green Left's been fighting for people-powered alternative media since 1991, supporting workers' rights campaigns and countering corporate media's lies and their kind of misdirections and that sort of stuff. And same with 3CR, um, Green Left needs your support to continue. So, like, you can go to uh, greenleft.org.au to subscribe and get the... Um, digital edition for like as little as five dollars a month or i think also on that page you can give a one-off donation um, or you can go to greenleft.org.au uh, slash donate instead of subscribe to give one-off donations to contribute to the uh, green left fighting fund um, as we call it which is the funds we use to you know keep everything running and also to make sure that we can try well try to make sure that we can get people to everything we possibly can to get more information out to people. And um, you can go to, I think it's green, uh, sorry, 3cr.org.au uh, slash donate as well to help keep 3CR online um, and on the radio. So it's I think it's important to, as we see these like massive cuts and generally disproportionate wealth distribution toward the wealthy, as always, I think it's important as much as we're able to to try and keep independent voices going. And I mean, that's basically, that's why we exist, Green Left. And I think that's why 3CR exists as well, is you need alternative voices and you need some access to uh, less corporate biased information. I won't say we're unbiased, but we certainly don't have a corporate bias here. So um, uh, just, okay, the thing that obviously really stands out, right, is that the stage three tax cuts amount to $243 billion stripped from the budget over 10 years. And generally, all these proposals that could make massive differences to ordinary people and to people who are really struggling, like increasing JobSeeker or like putting more money into public housing, they're comparatively so much, they cost so much less, right? Like if we had, uh, like I think I said earlier that it would be $34 billion to increase job seeker um, to 90% of the rate of the age pension. And but you could like increase all of the all of these sorts of um, payments and pensions and that sort of stuff uh like pretty noticeably, right? For 400 sorry, 243 billion dollars a year or like you could build so much in terms of public housing and reinvestment into health and uh, medicine and that sort of stuff with this $368 billion that we're going to be paying for nuclear submarines that I want to just repeat, we don't need them and they're going to make the situation worse. <laughs> like, um, I'm not sure if it has ended up on YouTube yet, but Green Left hosted an event um, to kind of oppose rising militarism or well, talk about rising militarism in Australia and the effects of AUKUS. Um, when was that? That was this past Tuesday. And uh, I think it was 
the talks were recorded. And the obvious point to make about all this is like, A, an absurd amount of money, but B, it's sort of, it's in a response, it's in response to a problem that we invented or that the Australian government and kind of military complex has pretty much invented. Um, I don't, I don't mean to say that, you know, like China's so good or anything like that. That's not my point here. The point is that like, they're not as bad as we like, as the, everybody's trying to kind of convince us, like, and they're not really a direct threat to us. They, <clears throat> the threat they pose, so to speak, uh, to us, as opposed to Tibet or India or the Philippines, the threat that China poses to us is making us feel bad that, um, the British Empire is no longer the rising power in the world, right? And like, <clears throat> We had a speaker from the Philippines, uh, who we've had on the show before, actually, Rehana Mohudin, um, from the Party of the Laboring Masses in the Philippines, talking about, like, even the fairly direct threats that China does materially pose to people in the Philippines is not, it's not like the same as, um, the sort of ever building war drive that we have in the West to try and build up more arms and fight them or something. It's, that's not an appropriate response, right? Like what we need is actually diplomatic solidarity to some extent. We need to work with people and like, as probably would usually happen, right? If we get these nuclear submarines, the, and if we do this sort of, you know, war drive stuff, the effects are going to be felt by working people as services continue to go unfunded and by probably a lot of the Pacific nations, um, like the Philippines or Indonesia or um, a lot of the Pacific islands, the effects are going to be felt there because we sort of, we end up treating them like our backyard, but in the sense of like, you know, you visit a friend and their backyard's just entirely full of junk. That seems to be how we how we treat all these nations in the Pacific Ocean, and it's just it's all harm basically is my point. It's all harm, and I'm annoyed about it. And you should go to greenlife.org.au/slash/donate. Uh, but I think we were going to move on to talking about um, some stuff. Some yeah, we other. might just play. We might just take a bit of a breather there. So, um, thanks to that Ari for for the, um, some of the news there. Um, we'll go play. We'll just go play a quick. Um, take a bit of a breather, and then we'll spend the last five minutes um, giving a bit of news updates and some climate activism. So yeah, I'll just play this song by Emma Donovan, um, Curry, titled with the song titled Curry Time. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and you're just listening to Curry Time by Emma Dunavan. Um, so now we got. To, I just want to give. Um, I want to sort of conclude the program with just a bit. Um, some activist news stories that have kind of happening. Um, so the first kind of news story I want to highlight is um is the is the kind of bit of just a bit of report back on the Rising Tide conference that took place um last weekend. And we've been actually actively kind of promoting it um for Green Left. And some exciting um story one exciting story is that actually on April sixteenth, um, as part of the kind of Rising Tide conference, and just to give a bit of background, Rising Tide is basically a a climate justice sort of organisation, and they basically they, they basically are a Newcastle-based grassroots organisation that has an ambitious plan to shut down the biggest world's coal coal port by 2030. And so they organise a four-day conference camp for climate action, which was attended by 300 activists, young and old, and. One of the kind of exciting stories about this is they essentially stopped the coal train for five hours on April 16th at the port of Newcastle. There was a tremendous media response due to um, dramatic photos of people shoveling coal off uncovered coal trains onto the ground. 
on Action Day, three busloads and about 30 cars went into a convoy to view the port. Mountains of coal ready to be um, ready to be loaded onto the biggest conveyor belt in the world to ship when the harbour is screened by pines and Olympics. The coal pile is the big largest in Australia. One square kilometre and the coal stackering machine can move more than 10,000 coals an hour. And so this was an enormous operation. The coal and and I think you know. On the morning of April 16th, when the convoy came down the hill, you know, we can see that planned action had been successful. There were 15 proud men and women standing up on the coal train and other 30 people next to the train holding banners. And on top of the coal train, standing precariously on the lumps of dirty coal were an 81-year-old woman and blind man. We have no idea how they got up to the ladders in the carriage, but they did. And, and I think, you know, this, this, every, every person near the coal train was charged as they were taken one by one by the police vans. The riot squad and dozens of police would have appreciated the double time. Four activists were taken to the watch house while one was held overnight in sales, in the cells. So that's just an example, the extent of the kind of police repression response. But I think it was quite, yeah, that sounded like quite exciting kind of protest. And, um, in, you know, one of the kind of following that sort of big sort of blockade, as part of the kind of Rising Tide conference. Rising Tide is basically a campaign to sign people up to the Climate Defence Pledge. It aims to find 10,000 people to stand together against the coal and gas CEOs and billionaires who are destroying the planet with their greed. And they state, once we have a united a critical mass of 10,000 everyday people committed to civil resistance, we know that we will have the power, diversity and numbers and power... Um, and numbers to win, Rising Tide said. At that point, we'll begin waves of sustained disruption to the, of the coal export industry until our demands are met. We are on the side of truth and justice, and we are on the right side of history. We are building hope. We are cancelling the apocalypse. So yeah, you can go find details about that, um, about the Rising Tide, um, about the Rising Tide sort of pledge. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go, yeah, so that's, um, Yep. I just wanted to mention as well, because um, because of my rambling, we ran out of time to play it. But there's also a video on our YouTube page and on uh, the Green Left website that's a bit of a kind of reflection and report back from um, an activist who was there. And um, so you can find, I mean, you can go to the website, like I said, so greenleft.org.au, or you can go to youtube.com slash greenleftonline. And also the um, interview we played between Alex Bainbridge and Max Chantle Mather is uh, on that YouTube channel. So if you wanted to listen to that again or share it with people, um, we would appreciate that. So, yeah, just to let you know where you can find some more info about that. All right. Um, now, actually, we're sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of running out of, I guess, sort of news to go report on. Um, I guess that's one thing I just want to give a bit of a plug for is... Um, Green Left and um, Socialist Alliance, we're actually going to be, we're part, um, Green Left is actually part of organising the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2023 conference, um, and which is going to be taking, which we advertise as part of the Green Left Access Calendar on July, um, for, um, on July 1st and July 2nd. It's going to be at the Victorian Trades Hall. Now, just one exciting announcement is that, um, the Eco Social 2023 conference is going to have Indian Labour lawyer Clifton D. Um, Rosera to, um, who is basically, he'll be, he, he is a central leader of the Communist Party of India, Marxist Leninist Liberation, one of the free, India's free 
mass communist um, parties. And of course, he's a labor lawyer with extensive experience representing workers in the fight for their rights, often against fierce repression. He'll basically report on the heroic battle to win um, union representation and greater rights for Dalit sanitation workers who carry out extremely hazardous jobs of manually unlocking sewer pipes in Bangalore, previously known as untouchables or scheduled castes in the Indian constitution. Dalit's at the bottom of the caste system. Um, you know, the early, the early workers' movement um, in India um, assumed that with the spread of capitalism, the caste system would fade away. Instead, the opposite has happened. Indian capitalism has reinforced caste to solidify class divisions and divisions within the working class itself. And, of course, CPIML considers it um, a strategic priority to organise among Dalit workers to advance the working class struggle and prevent the internalisation of caste, prejudice and privilege, which has plagued the Indian labour movement. And Du Rizzo will also be speaking about the fight to save democracy in response to the increasingly autocratic right-wing Hindu, Hindi chauvinist um, um, Narendra Mondi government, which threatens to overturn India's foundations as a secular republic. So, yeah, that's just a bit of an announcement. One of the yeah. exciting speakers coming to the Eco-Session Conference. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I ended up speaking at that last year about housing. So yeah. I, can, I can guarantee it's got my seal of approval. Mm. Um. All right. Now, I'll just go, um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, and yeah, stay tuned for Left After Breakfast, which will be playing after this. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from their slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.